Nehemiah chapter 6, let's begin in verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabal, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballot had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Samballot, according to, their, to these their works, and the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and the, and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shekekiniah, the son of Ariah, and his son Jehonanan had married the daughter of Mesulam, the son of Barakiah. Also they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Chapter 7. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors, when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani. And Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut the bar, shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. Let's pray together. Lord, we yield ourselves to you. We want to hear from you. We want you to teach us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, but we know you're working towards us, learning to be more and more obedient to you. So we ask, Lord, that these verses, that you would apply these and show us and reveal to us how we, we can be better obedient to your word related to these things. And we pray, God, that you would help us to put you first in everything in our lives. Lord, you don't desire us to try to serve multiple lords. You want us to serve you, the one and true and only Lord, the one and true God. And so we yield our hearts to you. We ask, Lord, that you would bring us into further sanctification and, and more Christ-likeness would be produced as a result of this time. We ask you to set it aside for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at um, just 
how God is raising up this man, Nehemiah, to, to lead the children of Israel and lead them in rebuilding this wall that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. And he had heard this bad news from his brother. His brother had come uh, and shared with him just the, the, tor- the horrible condition that the walls were in and the gates and all these things. And God had supplied supernaturally uh, through King Artaxerxes, uh, and so he has been following what the Lord has led him to accomplish. Because King Artaxerxes had supplied uh, materials, building materials. He'd supplied a way for them to get all the way to Israel safely and supplied a, a, a military escort and all of that. But then not only did he provide that, God provided people that were willing to work. Because we're told that they had said, or he had said about them, that they had a mind to work. And they weren't vacillating back and forth with their commitment. They were, they were committed to, to uh, you know, following through with helping these walls get rebuilt. And each of them had a place that they were to work, a place on the wall, so to speak, to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the gates, the doors, and all those things. And so we, as we've seen, we've seen multiple problems uh, come against them or, or come uh, in their in, in line with uh, what they wanted to do and, and, and got in the way between what they wanted to do and, and accomplishing those things. And so we've seen threats, we've seen mockery, we've seen uh, you know, fear being used, which we're going to see more of today. And, and it was up to Nehemiah, and it was up to the, the leaders, and it was up to the people to recognize that the task that they were assigned to of rebuilding this wall was a good work. And at one point, Nehemiah says that. He says, this is a good work. This is a work of God. And so they had to recognize that and recognize, as we've seen all the way through the book, that God's good hand was upon them. And that's the whole key to everything. Anything that God calls us to, we have to recognize that where he guides, he provides. And when he's guiding us, it's obvious, not just to us, but to others, that God's good hand is upon us and whatever ministry we find ourselves wherever we're serving wherever we're on the wall so to speak in our place in the body of Christ to serve and so yes there're going to be attacks there's going to be mockery there's going to be people that that use try to use fear there's going to be as we saw last week people try to distract us into compromise as Sam Ballad and the others try to get them to come him to come down off the wall to the valley of Ono to uh consult with him nothing good was going to come out of that whatsoever and he didn't go down and he said why should I go down and talk to you you know this is a great work of God and he stayed focused it's so easy to get distracted away from what God's called us to do we have to make sure we've heard from him in the first place but then once we've heard from him we need to step out and we need to be dependent upon him we need to be faithful until he tells us otherwise. And, and there's been a lots of works of God, lots of people serving in different areas in the body of Christ that the enemy's gotten them to get off track because of circumstances changing instead of God ever revealing to them that his will had changed. And oftentimes it, they have to compromise God's word and able to follow through with these changes and leaving the ministry that God has called them to. So here today he's continuing dealing with these threats. And we see in verse 10 that we're told, Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah. That's not Delilah. That's Deliah. This is a guy here. The son of uh, Mehitabal, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. 
Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. So we're told that Shimei provides an invitation to Nehemiah. This, this invitation to meet with him in the temple behind closed doors. And why? Why does he want him to come? He's trying to act like he's tipping him off. Like he's actually his friend and giving him a heads up, as we would say, to something bad that's happened. That, as they're saying, because they're coming to kill you. And worse yet, they're coming at night. At night. Ooh, at night. It's even darker and more dangerous and more things to be afraid of. You know, oh, I'm not afraid of the dark. And yeah, you have your nightlight, some of you, you know. Um, you know, I mean, we don't like the dark. Walk, I mean, how many of us like to walk through a dark alley or, you know, I mean, it's darkness. It can be unnerving and so forth. It makes it worse that he's saying here it's going to come at night. And again, just like we saw last week with these threats that came last week, the enemy is trying to use fear. And it's, it's fitting for us to go over what fear is. All fear is is emotion. That's all fear is. It's an emotion. And, and, but it could be a very powerful motivator, a very <laughs> effective tool. Sometimes people harm us by using that. They try to motivate us by using fear and so forth. And it's, Now, this whole thing is intended to provide motivation to an end. The goal wasn't to make him fearful, per se. The goal was to make him fearful so that he would do something. Last week, it was intended to, to be a motivator to get Nehemiah to consult with them on the plane of Ono to stop the work, and who knows what they had in mind. This time, it's to get him to go into the temple. And there are very specific reasons why they wanted him to go into the temple, which we'll see in a moment. It wasn't by accident. This was well thought out. Most attacks are. We don't, they, don't, they don't seem like that up front necessarily, but they are. They're well thought out, and so... There's very specific reasons why he wants him to go into the temple. Now, notice Nehemiah's response in verse 11. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And I want to stop there. Should such a man as I flee? He's talking about who he is. Should such a man as I? Who, was, who is Nehemiah? He was a man, yes. He was a man. He was a godly man. He was in charge of an important project. But ahead of all those things, he was God's man. He was the man that God had raised up to lead God's people in a very specific purpose. And that he was gracing him and anointing him, so to speak, to be able to lead his people for a very specific task. And see, the, the, the great thing is that Nehemiah knew that. He knew as a Jew, first of all, he was in covenant with God. And that God was on his side. Actually, he was on God's side, I should say. Um, God isn't our co-pilot. <laughs> you know, he, he's the pilot. And, and we're way back in the back of the plane following him. But he was called. That's the issue. Called. He was called to lead God's people. And he feared God. One of the ways that God tries to bring us into maturity even more and more on a regular basis is he's trying to help us accept who he says we are in Christ. Sometimes we think, well, you know, my identity in Christ is important because I don't want anyone else outside of me to think, you know, a certain way and about me. And so I need to focus on who I am in Christ. But it's just as much important to re realize that it's irrelevant what you think of yourself as it is what anyone else thinks of yourself. Because sometimes what we think about ourselves is contrary to God's word. 
And he defines who we are, not who we, who, what we think of ourselves. And we live on a lower plane than what he wants us to live on as believers, myself included, because we're defining ourselves by our experience and what we think about ourselves instead of who he says we are related to God's word. And when we see who we are related to God's word, then we live at a higher level. We live at a level that he's called us to live. We don't do things or not do things to become who we are in Christ. I'll say that again. We don't do things or not do things to become who we are in Christ. It's actually the opposite. Who we are in Christ determines our actions, our faith, and how we honor God. And Nehemiah didn't wait for his rejection to go into the temple to define who he was. His definition of who he was actually disallowed him from going into that temple. It wasn't the other way around. We can't wait as believers to watch our actions and have that form who we think we are in Christ. It's the opposite. We need to go to this book and we need to recognize what he says about us and start walking in the reality of that. Well, I don't feel that way. It doesn't matter what you feel like. How many times in Scripture does someone not feel or think that they're up to it? God says you are, and I've chosen you because when I do a work through you, you're going to do, I'm going to do miracles through you, and I'm going to get the glory. And they say, okay, I'll just let you do what only you can do. And he, God does it, and they do amazing things. That's the normal pattern in Scripture. But we think, well, I have to do all these things to become this mighty man of God or woman of God, and then God can use me. No, you are a mighty man of God. You are a mighty woman of God. Look what God's word says about us. We're more than conquerors. More. I'd be satisfied with just being a conqueror in Christ. But I'm more than a conqueror in Christ. You know, you can legitimately say, but wait, there's more. Like an infomercial, you know. There's more. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. You're forgiven. He knows all of the things that you're going to do. He's already paid for them on the cross. He's not being stumbled by that. He doesn't want us to sin, of course. But it's not stumbling him like he doesn't know about it. He, we have all of our past forgiven. We have, we have his word. We have so many things. We're children of God. We are sons and daughters of the king. We are citizens of another government. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our names are written in the book of life. All those things need to define who we think we are instead of how we live and how we formulate our opinions about ourselves. At one point, the Apostle Paul said, I don't even judge myself. Why? Because he knows that God was judging him. God was defining who he is and who he was. And so Nehemiah knows all of this. He's not, he's saying, such, should such a man as I flee? Now we could fill in the blank of anything. So such a man as I watch this or do this or disobey the great commission and not preach the gospel or not love my neighbor or not be gracious to someone in the church. But they irritate me. <laughs> well, yeah, you probably irritate them too. They don't deserve grace. Does anybody deserve grace? That's kind of the point. That's the definition of grace. You get favor and you don't deserve it. I mean, there's so many things because of who we are, we have the capacity to do what only um, God's people can do. So he said, why should such a man as I flee? He's not waiting to be defined. God's already defined him and he's going to, to walk in it. Now he continues his response in verse 11. And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. He's not going into the temple. He's not, as a, as a man such as I, I am not going in the temple, especially to save my life. If God's going to take my life, he's going to take it. But I'm not going to go into the temple. I will not go in. 
And why? Why was it a big deal to go into the temple? Hey, Nehemiah, just go, go, to, go to the temple. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And the reason why it's a big deal is because God had already forbade it. He'd forbidden him from, from doing that because, you see, Nehemiah knew that anyone beyond the priests were not allowed to go into the inner rooms of the temple, the holy place and the most holy place. I want to read. Actually, we can turn there. we got some time. Turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Hold your place here in Nehemiah. Go over to 2 Chronicles 26. No shame in looking at the table of contents. Totally fine. Second Chronicles chapter 26. And I want to read a passage before we start reading there. Okay, it's in Numbers. Just stay in Second Chronicles 26. I want to read you a verse. Numbers 18 verse 7 says this. Therefore you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. See, God had already set it up. Only the priests are allowed to go in there, and Nehemiah knew that. Now, there was an example of, of a king doing, disobeying this. I want, to, I want us to see what, what had happened there. 2 Chronicles chapter 26, I want to begin reading in verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, this is Uzziah, to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him. (laughs) What's this guy doing? And with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, so thankful for men that stand up for the truth and aren't intimidated by anything else. Verse 18, And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. See, King Uzziah wasn't consecrated to do that. God had, he thought he was worthy because of who he was. But he wasn't worthy because he hadn't been consecrated. Get out of the sanctuary for you have trespassed. You have done, you have no honor from the Lord God. Or you shall have no honor from the Lord God. Verse 19, then Uzziah became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, I love that, looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out, I bet, because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham, his son, was his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. You can turn back to Nehemiah. So there's an example of someone going into the temple that was not allowed to go into those inner rooms there. Nehemiah knew this. And so there's this plan here. We see this plan to get him to compromise, to get him to sin. And it was he used fear. He used fear to try to get him to to compromise 
Now let's look at verse 12 back in Nehemiah of chapter 6. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. So notice he says, I perceived that God had not sent him at all. How did he perceive that? Because he was prophesying something that was contrary to God's already revealed word. How many believers have gotten off track because someone's given them a prophecy that didn't line up with scripture? And they, maybe they were very impressive how they pronounced it. You know, they started using the King James, you know, and was they're talking, you know, somehow that's more spiritual, um, you know, and they're saying all this stuff and they're prophesying. It seems right and all of that. And maybe I'm fearful. Maybe I'm coming into the situation afraid of something and someone comes in with this prophecy that's false, that, that misrepresents what God's words already said. I need to have discernment by being grounded in the word to say, no, I'm sorry. That isn't of the Holy Spirit. And so he said, God had not sent him at all, but pronounced this against me because Tobiah and Samballat had hired him. False prophets have always been in it for themselves. No different today. There's many prophets, false prophets on television that are teaching against God's word. They're violating God's word. They're, and they're, they're fleecing the sheep. And they're living for themselves. And, and it's so sad. And so it's, things have never changed. They're just self-hired today. They're not hired by someone else, per se. They're hired for themselves. And they're self-appointed. So they've always been around. They've always been it for themselves. And, and they can look great on the outside. You know, Paul dealt with this in 2 Corinthians where he talked about the false apostles. He talked about that Satan comes as an angel of light. And he said, no wonder, even... His workers masquerade themselves as workers of righteousness. We can't judge by the tie. We can't judge by how great the words they use and all of that, and for sure their hair. Because, man, sometimes, woo! It's like breaking the laws of physics there with how their hair is and everything. I can't even compete. Just trying to hold on to mine. But anyway, so, I mean, but you have to look at what they say. You have to look at what they actually teach. You have to test what they say by scripture alone. Look great on the outside. I want to read a verse from you, for you from Isaiah chapter 8, um, 19 and 20. It says, And when they say to you, Seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So he's prophesying against these false teachers and these mediums and these spiritists, you know, the Psychic Friends Network. They went out of business. I don't know if you knew that, but Dionne Warwick and all. They said they never saw it coming, but they should have. They should have. I mean, but, but he says there, to the, law and the, and to, the, to the law and to the testimony, saying that's what keeps us safe. To the law and to the testimony. They do not speak according to this word. It is because they have no light in them. God will never violate his word to lead you in a different path. You'll never have to violate God's word to go a different direction in ministry or your life or whatever. You have to seek wise counsel. You need to seek God's word. You need to seek wise counsel. There's There's safety in the multitude of counselors. Remember, all of this is done in the context of fear. All of it is in the context of fear. 
The times where we're the weakest and we're afraid of something is the times when we're wanting to compromise Scripture. Well, God knows I need my needs met, and so if I break these laws and I cheat on my taxes or I ignore these certain laws related to the, you know, my business, you know, he understands. No, no, but you don't have to. He doesn't need you to disobey his word to provide for you. His promises aren't conditional on you breaking his word. We have to stay true to his word. Well, he wants me happy at all costs, and so, you know, I'm going to leave my spouse because, you know, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And No, he doesn't ask you to break his word to be happy. He calls us to, to not fear. I want to read a passage from Acts chapter 20. And this, this is Paul not being moved related to some news that he was getting. Acts 20, verse 18 and following says this, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from, and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is the Apostle Paul on the island of Miletus with those Ephesian elders he'd spent three years with, teaching them, and being. And he's going to be saying goodbye to them in this passage, and they're not going to see his face again, and they're going to hang on his neck, and he has some more things that we're going to read in a moment, but he's, he's trying to tell them, look, I know what God's will is. His will is that it's going to be difficult. And I know it's going to be hard, and I know I'm going to suffer, and the Holy Spirit's being gracious with letting me know these things, but none of those things move me. See, that's how God's called us to live our lives, because we know who we are in Christ, and we're walking in that, and also we're not being moved by fear. None of these things move us, because we recognize that God's in control, and he knows what's best for us, and he has grace for every situation in which I find myself. The enemy wanted to use fear to move Nehemiah. You know what he said? None of these things move me. I'm not going in the temple and disobey God's word. I'm not in the mood for leprosy today. No, thank you. You know, I'm not going into that thing. I'm not going into that. I don't have to disobey God to save my hide because there's an attack and it's coming at night. Ooh, at night too. It's a big thing. So he knew, Nehemiah did, that the enemy wanted to use that fear to motivate him to violate God's word and sin, thus discrediting him in the eyes of the people. That was their end goal so that they wouldn't follow him anymore because they had greater and greater influence over them before he had come on the scene and he, they wanted that back. They wanted that power. They wanted that influence. So they wanted him in a weakened condition. Verse 13. For this reason, he was hired that I should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. So it's just like the enemy, you know, he tempts you. And then when you give in and you sin, then he condemns you for doing it. Oh, how dare you call yourself a Christian? 
you know, and all these things. And he's the one that tempted us. It's still our responsibility. It's still the, you know, it lies at our doorstep, so to speak, with the, with the guilt and the fault or whatever. But he doesn't play fair. He will tempt us. And then once we sin, then he'll condemn us for doing it and try to destroy us. And it's exactly what, what they're trying to do. They're trying to tempt into sin, and then they're going to make his life a reproach and all of that. Now, notice in verse 14, Nehemiah goes to prayer. Verse 14, he says, My God, remember Tobiah and Samballot according to these their works, and the prophetess Noadia and the rest of the prophets who would have, me made, who would, would have made me afraid. So he's wanting God to allow them to reap what they've sown. Now, for us, we're supposed to pray for our enemies. Jesus said we need to pray for our enemies and all of that. And, and so, obviously, this is a different covenant that he's in. You know, we're called to pray for our enemies and all of that. There's nothing wrong with us saying, you know, if, if they walk in their disobedience and all of that, it, there's nothing wrong with us praying, obviously, for them to repent as a result of those things that they suffer and, and ask God to give, be gracious with them and help them to turn back to him and all of that. There's nothing wrong with that. Related to all these things in prophecy, I do want to make one more thing uh, evident and just remind us of this. We went through this and we went through our series on spiritual gifts after we went through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And we talked about the gift of prophecy. And, and so that, you know, we're, we're seeing it in our passage. And I want us to be reminded that there are, um, there are three specific reasons or end goals that God has in mind for when he uses the gift of prophecy in our midst when someone is, has, you know, gives a prophecy. And we're told those three specific reasons or what, ha- what has to be involved in it to in part to be a true prophecy. And he, and he reveals that in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, where we're told this, He who prophesies speak edification and exhortation and comfort to men. Sometimes these prophecies come and they don't, they're, not, they're not edifying at all. They're not exhortive at all. They're not comforting at all. They're condemning. So when you hear a prophecy, a so-called prophecy, and it's condemning, it's not of the Holy Spirit. Or if it contradicts God's existing word already, it's a false prophecy. It doesn't matter how much we respect that person, how many times they've done it right. It doesn't matter. That specific prophecy is not of the Spirit. If it doesn't bring those three things or it contradicts God's word, we have to know that. There's a lot of craziness out there, a lot of so-called prophecies which are crazy i mean i've heard some doozies trust me verse 15 so the wall was finished on the 25th day of elul in 52 days it took about just as long for nehemiah to get to israel as it did to finish the wall that's the focus they had he already had revealed they had a mind to work and they were doing things god's way and they were relying upon him. They were recognizing that God's good hand was upon them and all that. But 52 days, think about it. I was looking at the calendar and I realized that this Thursday, 52 days from this Thursday is January 1st, our first Sunday. And uh, so, you know what? I'm just thinking that, you know, there might be a, a repeat of this. I know we've already started, so it doesn't really count. But I mean, laser target focus. You know, pray. Pray. 
Pray for the progress. Pray for the people serving. Pray for their health. Pray for more workers. Pray for finances. This is a huge thing. And I don't want you to think that we don't believe it's a big thing because we're not constantly talking about it all the time and all these. It's a huge thing. We all need to do our part. But I, when I was counting, I'm like, ooh, woo, 52 days from this coming Thursday. Interesting. Verse 15, or 16 rather. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was done by our God. Isn't that the goal? Just like when I said, we're going to get there in our facility and we're going to go, hasn't God done great things? And you know that's, that's how it has to happen. Any of our ministries have to bring glory to him. If people can understand how it's working, it's probably not of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he just does things the way he does things in a way that brings awe to people. And just how, how in the world, God, did you to do that but even our enemies even the enemies of the people of God can see that things are done by God we don't want any of our names on anything that he has us doing he wants to be the one that gets all the glory for everything and it's beautiful there wasn't any gimmicks there wasn't any all these tricks and all these things where you could take Jesus out of it and it'd still work that's a problem you know, he's the one that builds the church. He's the one that's building it. We have to get away from all these man-made things and try to bring it into the scriptures and try to make it work instead of just trusting him and letting him do the work and trying to stay out of his way. Verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. There's our friend again. Tobiah. And the letters of Tobiah came to them. So they were corresponding with the enemy. And why is this happening? And it's happened because we're going to see in a moment. Because they were related by marriage. And they didn't have discernment. Two things. They allowed their close marital relationship to interfere with hearing God clearly. And also they didn't have discernment. Because that marital relationship and that relationship that they had, that track record with, with Tobiah, all of that, that wasn't, that wasn't something that they were discerning about and what he was in the middle of. Because they should have known all these things about how he had been used by the enemy to get in the way of the work, but yet they still didn't see all that. They didn't have discernment. Let's read more about this, this kind of um, attack from within. Verse 18. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah and the son of Arah and his son Jehoiathan had married the daughter of Mesulam, the son of Barakiah. So now in chapter 3, we're told that these people that were connected to Tobiah, they had a place on the wall. They, built, they helped rebuild the wall. They were God's people. They were in the midst of, of all this. But they, because of these relationships, he was, inter, he was married into these families. And he had children that were involved in all of that with Tobiah. And so because of that, these family relationships were allowed to get in the way of what God was doing. And we can let family and friends, close relationships, skew our view of, of certain works of God in, 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 the, in the context of serving and all of those things. We have to make sure we don't use any kind of preferential treatment or you know, look at people differently that we're close to, but we need to apply the same principles of Scripture to everybody equally. And what they were doing with Tobiah is because they had this family relationship, they weren't viewing Tobiah in a, in, a, in a discerning way. 
because they allowed that, those, the family relationships, that bias, to get in the way of seeing him for who he really was. He was being used by the enemy against their own country, but yet they couldn't see it. We have to be very careful against being deceived within our families when you look at everything accurately from Scripture or else we're going to have a, a, a bad situation like this. But they also didn't have, um, well, the, the discernment there is we see in verse 19, as I got a little ahead of myself, but verse 19 shows the lack of discernment. Also they reported his good deeds before me, that's Tobias, and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So here are these inner relationships here. They had sent, they were trying to tell Nehemiah his good deeds. This guy is good. You've missed him. You've misdiagnosed this guy. You have a completely wrong view of this guy. I'm, look at all the good things that he's done. It's because their, their family bias was getting in the way. And then they were reporting words to Tobiah. So Tobiah had inside information on what's going on. It reminds me of our government, our Justice Department, and all these things, and these inside information, and, and this lack of integrity with organizations and parts of the government and all of that. It's horrible. And then again, Tobias sent letters to frighten. There's this recurring theme of fear. But Paul said, none of these things move me. None of these things change reality. Reality is what's truth. The truth is, God's called me here. The truth is, this is God's work. His good hand is upon me. He's using me. I'm not going to let anything get, get in the way of that. Even if someone has a family relationship with someone, their, their bias is coming through and they're not having discernment, I am not going to get sidetracked. And it's beautiful. The threat of these things from having attacks come from within, we have to be careful. And again, that same passage I quoted in John or um, Acts chapter 20, where Paul's on that island of Miletus with the Ephesian elders, he's warning them of threats from within. I want to read it to you. Acts 20, verse 29 and following says this, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul is warning them. Now he had spent more time with the church of Ephesus than any other church in the New Testament. Three years teaching the word of God, raising up leaders and all of that. You would think that of all the ministries that would be immune to that kind of thing happening... It would be the Apostle Paul's ministry, but absolutely not. Direct teaching by an apostle, by the Spirit, and there's still lead, people there that are going to come up after he leaves from among their own number. They're going to carry, try to carry away disciples for, you know, away for themselves. And we have to be careful of that. Internal opportunity, internal selfish ambition. Be on watch, church, against that. Be on watch against people rising up and taking a place that God hasn't called them to, trying to carry people away to themselves. That could happen at any time. By God's grace, for eight and a half years or whatever, we haven't had any, anything like that. Part of that has to do with, well, all of it has to do with God's grace, but how he's expressed that grace is providing amazing leadership that don't have any selfish ambition related to that, but we still need to be on guard against it. Now, we get to chapter 7, and he begins to govern now. That's what we're going to see. So the work has been completed and so forth. Um, he says in verse 1, Then it was when the wall when, um, it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors. That's what was lacking before. 
when the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. So here he's putting up structure now. He's being led by the Holy Spirit. Everything needs to be done decently and in order, we're told in the New Testament. We're told that God is not the author of confusion. So things need to be done decently and in order. All the way through the whole Bible, you see things being done decently and in order. All the way through. Even to how Jesus folded his, his headpiece that he was wrapped in when he'd been buried. He folded that in a neat little thing. I mean, all the way down, there's order. How he created everything. How he gave the law. How I mean, you can go all the way down to a whole study on how orderly God is. We think things are orderly. It's not spirit-led. That's not true at all. It's just according to how he defines uh, orderly, because that can be a different idea than what we think. But he, but he begins to govern here, and notice at the end of verse 1, he says the Levites and all these other people, these singers, the gatekeepers, the Levites, had been appointed. That's an important word. It's not just the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament as well. There's no voting. There's no democratic process in the kingdom of God. You don't see voting. You see it once in, in the New Testament. But that's before they were baptized with the Spirit when they cast lots, and that wasn't even really voting. But that God works through leadership, and, and it's all through the Bible. And, and, and so they are appointed. That doesn't mean that one person makes all the decisions. There's prayer and there's seeking counsel and you know, all of those things, but they are appointed. There is order, and they are appointed. It doesn't mean that anybody could have been a gatekeeper and anybody been a singer and anybody been a Levite that wanted to, to to serve in this way could just go ahead and just do it just because they wanted to do it. They had to be appointed. There had to be something going on between them and the leaders, namely Nehemiah in this case, that says this person is appropriate for this role. Verse 2, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, and the citadel was the fortress on the northern end of the city. Um, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So we saw Hananiah in chapter in the beginning of the book, where he came and brought Nehemiah the news. And I told you that it was his brother, not just one of his brethren, like a Jew brethren. It was his actual literal brother that came to him. He's, he names him here as well. And then it's kind of funny, Hananiah and Hananiah, it's like, how many nicknames could come from that, you know, um, so close there. Uh, as someone said, you know, why didn't it was Fred and George? I don't know why there's that close. But um, the important thing is, is that with Hananiah, he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Look at the end of verse 2. He was a faithful man and feared God more than many. You know, what's interesting is how people in the church world get picked for things. You know, you think of church boards, and usually, many times, they're amazing businessmen, very successful businessmen. And those sometimes are the ones that, that people jump to. Oh, we've got to have this person. They're really good at business and all, all of that. Instead of, look at Acts chapter 6, where you have those that are going to be serving these, these widows, and they're going to be deacons, going to be waiting on tables. And there's this list of being filled with the Spirit and wisdom and all these things that are, that are huge. We would say, why that's overqualified? Why would God want those things for someone waiting on tables? Because every single thing we do in the body of Christ is important, and He wants integrity, and He wants those that are serving to be full of those things. And so it's the same case here. He's going to be overseeing, uh, you know, all these things, the citadel and everything. And so He says He was a faithful man and feared God more than many. What are two important traits? Faithful. 
It's required in those that are servants that they be found faithful. That's right from the New Testament. And people want to come in. We don't know them. They don't know us. And they're right in there demanding to be on the worship team or demanding to be doing this or that. And like, hey, you know, just let us get to know you. Let us just get to see if you're, you know, who you are and you get to know us. And maybe you don't want to hear bad jokes on Sunday mornings, you know. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't know what, what, how God is leading you. Just let us get to know you. It's okay. It's normal. And, and no, I'm going to take my ball and go home. Okay. I'm sorry. I can't help you there. Because it's because I want to, especially related to the worship team, I want to make sure your life represents worship. If you're going to be leading God's people in worship, doesn't mean we're going to be perfect at all, nothing like that. But we have to, our lives count for something. We can't see us, you know, bar hopping all over the place on Saturday and then coming and leading worship on Sunday. I mean, that's what's that going to do for someone that's struggling and all of that? So faithfulness is so important, and fearing God is so important as well to reverence Him and to have Him at the Top priority of our lives. Beautiful picture there. Verse 3. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards, there's our word again, appoint guards from, not point guard, but appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt. So he tells them, don't open those gates until the sun is hot. He's basically having a very limited exposure there by having the gates open only certain times of the day at first because they're small and the houses hadn't been rebuilt. They were still vulnerable. So that tells me that the risk is still there after the wall's completed, after the gates are set, after everyone has a place and there's order, people have been appointed, there's still an important necessity to stand guard and to, and to have everybody be alert. And that's what the New Testament says all through the New Testament. About be alert, be sober, be vigilant. Easy for me to say. Because your adversary, the devil, walks, prowls around or walks around like a, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And we, he always tells us to be alert and be paying attention, having a spiritual heads up, be aware of our surroundings, what's going on related to our ministries. After we get to that building, there's going to be a lot of things that come up. And I know that the enemy is not going to stop working, obviously. So everybody's in their place. Everybody has a place to serve. We are seeking the Holy Spirit on the new ministries and all that, how he's changing the ministry and all of that. There needs to still be all of us be on guard against the attacks of the enemy and, and be aware that he wants to give us wisdom on how to best be stewards. It's really a stewardship issue that he's dealing with here, to be stewarding God's, uh, what God has provided well, because the enemy is not going to stop. You know, after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, we're told in one of the Gospels that the enemy departed from him for a season. We know that he came back, obviously. So there may be little lulls in the attack, but that doesn't mean we put our guard down. We keep our guard up, and we still walk in the armor of God and all of those things, and we have um, sobriety and we walk in that sobriety and so forth. And so that's what he wants for us. It's beautiful just to see how all of this happened. It's beautiful to see how God arranged all of this, how Nehemiah didn't fall for one thing. And he prayed multiple times when he's feeling weak or whatever, and he recognizes he doesn't have what, what he needs to have to re, related to being who God's called him to be. And he asks for prayer, or, I mean, he goes to God in prayer, and God is faithful every single, every single time. 
So great lesson. There's so much more in the rest of this book. I can't wait to get to it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all the wisdom here. Protect us, Lord, from the enemy's attacks. Lord, but we focus more on you than the enemy because you're worthy of it. So we ask, Lord, as we pray about where we're going to serve or we pray about where we are serving, Lord, we'd be drawing our strength and, and grace from you to be faithful and to fear you. Lord, we want to honor you with everything that we do. Thank you, Father, that you can do so much through little, Lord. And we are small in many ways, but we're, we serve a big God. And you can do far more exceedingly, abundantly above what we could ever ask or think. And so we yield our lives to you. We yield our church to you. And we yield in Jesus' name. Amen.